Well, good morning. I was looking at the screen to see if there was anything else that was going to play, but I think this is it. So let's stand. I'm super glad to be with you guys again this morning. It's always a joy to be in the presence of Jesus with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's just close our eyes and give this morning to the Lord. Father, we love you. And we, um, we recognize our need for you this morning. Lord, we ask that you would fill this place with your presence. We ask that you would fill our hearts with you, a greater and deeper knowledge of you and who you are, a greater and deeper love for you. And God, as we sing these songs, may they be the cry of our hearts. Lord, that we would worship you with our whole hearts, our whole minds, our souls, our life. God, that you would be praised and lifted up here in this church in Napa this morning. God, that it would be so evident that we met with you. In your name we pray. Amen. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we only want to hear your voice, we're hanging on every word. Spirit of the living God, Spirit of the living God, we want to know you more and more, we're hanging on Changes what we see and what we 
do what only you can do. Changes us, changes what we see, and what we see. You're changing Ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. 
kindness makes us whole and you show the weakness and your strength becomes our own now you're making me like you you're clothing me in white bringing beauty from ashes for you have your pride free of all her guilt and rid of all her shame and known by her true name and that's why I sing your praise will ever be on my lips ever be on my lips your praise will ever be on my lips ever be on my lips your praise will ever be on my lips ever be on my lips your praise will Ever be on my lips, you will be praised. You will be praised with angels and saints. We see worthy of you, Lord. You will be praised. You will be praised with angels and saints. We see worthy. and saints, we sing worthy of you, Lord. You will be praised. You will be praised. With angels and saints, we sing worthy of you, Lord. And that's why I sing your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips. want to pause here for a moment. And I want you just to praise the Lord for who he is, what he's done in your life. In what you hear 
is my Hey. 
As I stand here, that as much as I adore this song, it's extremely convicting. Because I know if we're all honest, that it would be hard to live out this chorus, to mean it 100%. draws us to the question, would we really lay down our lives for the sake of you? Would I lay down my life just to be by your side? It's convicting. But God, thank you for sending Jesus because that's exactly what he did. He did lay down his life so that we could be by his side and as much as I fall short we fall short you see us covered in the blood of Christ and although we fail you do not so God as we yearn to love you more Let us look to Jesus to fill us with the love that we ought to have for you. It's because of the work that was done on the cross that we can sing hallelujah. Sing that bridge one more time.
Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the work that you're doing here in this room, in every heart. God, would you continue our worship now as we hear your word being spoken? Would you soften our hearts to hear what you want to say to us? And God, that we would leave here changed, looking just a little bit more like Jesus. Thank you that we get to praise you for all of our days here on earth and then with you in eternity. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated.
All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. I was just smiling as I was looking at my notes because uh, I don't know if y'all know this, but preachers have reoccurring nightmares about everything going wrong on Sunday mornings. And like every little thing that could go wrong does go wrong in the most radical of ways. And uh, the notes is like one of those things. And I just rem- remembered that. And so me and Pastor Dan uh, laugh at just how crazy those dreams can get. And so anyways, pretty funny. Just not while I'm having the dream. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 12. A couple announcements. Almost forgot. Um, so, there's going to be a uh, pumpkin carving coming up. All the details are right there. October 28th from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, they ask that you bring your own pumpkin and a snack to share. As always, there's going to be all kinds of fun. Michaela just does the best job, our children's ministry director. And it's always a blast, and it's such a great family time together. And um, you can come out and carve a pumpkin even if you don't have kids. It's just a fun time uh, all together. And so just want to invite everybody out. We've done this for the last uh, couple of years, maybe longer, and uh, it's always been a real sweet time. So mark your calendars and come out to that. And then lastly, um, we have a lost and found out there. It looks like a merch corner. Uh, Pastor Dan did a really good job of pulling everything out and hanging it up and folding it neatly on the table out there. So if uh, we would ask you to go out there today, take a look. I was actually quite amazed. I knew we had stuff in there, but I didn't know it was to that extent. And so Take a look, please, see if uh, anything there is yours or one of your kids, and we're going to basically say, if not, then if there's something next week that you want, take it, and then after that, we're just going to like, you know, donate it or, or whatever, so please uh, visit the lost and found slash merch area and uh, see if there's anything of yours that is there. All right, well, I believe that does it for the announcements, and so... Um, If you would, join with me in a word of prayer, and we will get into our text for today. Father, we love you so much, and we are grateful to be able to gather together as the children of God. Thank you, Lord, that to those who believe on the name of Jesus Christ has been given the right to be children of God, and so we are. And as dear children, we desire to imitate you and to honor you, to give you thanks and praise and glory day, to not lean upon our own understanding or trust our own ways, but to look to you in all things, to acknowledge you always, God, and to trust that you will lead us in the good and right way, in the best way. And that is a very real part of why we are here even this morning, Father, because we need you. Every moment, every hour, every day, year after year, God, we need you. And so I pray that you would meet us through your all-sufficient word right now. Uh, your inspired word. I pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit and that you would uh, enrich us, that you would enlighten our understanding, that you would draw us closer to you, and that you would be glorified as we've come here to humble ourselves under your word, your exalted word. You said that I would elevate my word even over my name, that heaven and earth would pass away, but your word would never pass away. And so we love your holy word, God, and please instruct us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, hallelujah. Well, we are continuing to work our way through the Gospel of John. Today we are in chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 26, which I'll read that here in just a moment. But just a little bit of a recap. Last week we looked at the triumphal entry. Remember that? As Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey, sometimes it's called Palm Sunday. And uh, these crowds of excited worshipers and onlookers gathered to hail Jesus as the King of Israel, the long-awaited King. And we saw that. Jesus had just left Simon the leper's house. Remember, he was at dinner, and Simon, who had been a leper, and Lazarus, who had been raised from the grave after being in there four days. So he had dinner with them. Mary poured a costly perfume out on his feet and his head. Well, after that, he enters into Jerusalem. We are in the last week of Jesus' life, so the cross is very near. We're just talking a matter of a few days, and Jesus would be crucified. Well, last week we said that was God's appointed day. It was God's appointed day. It went exactly the way God said it would to the day. God's exact timing. Remember we talked about that? That's how God works. God's precise detail. It happened exactly as God said it would happen. We visited a couple different passages, Daniel, Zechariah, Psalms, And it was according to God's unstoppable purposes. Nothing can stop God in His purpose. Amen? That's the God that we know, love, and serve. He does everything in accordance to His perfect and exact and precise timing and unstoppable purposes. Well, today we are going to see, as the story continues, some unlikely visitors who come to Jerusalem to meet with Jesus. We're told that some Greeks come along in the midst of those worshipers uh, who had come to celebrate the Passover. And that might not seem very strange to us to hear that, but it was. It was quite, it would have been quite unusual. And there's something going on here that we'll, uh, we'll discuss in a moment. But undoubtedly, word of Lazarus's resurrection and the triumphal entry had spread far and wide. And these Gentile pilgrims, these non-Jews, They hoped that they would be able to personally meet the king of Israel. And so they request to be able to uh, see Jesus, meet Jesus, to talk with him. And the key to understanding the text before us, and kind of as we finish out this chapter, is recognizing it as a transitional text. This is a, a huge transition in the book of John, if you will. John 12 marks the final rejection of Jesus in his public ministry. For the first 12 chapters of John, Jesus is preaching, teaching, doing signs and wonders, healing in a very public way, going toe-to-toe with the religious rulers of that day. But in chapter 12, it kind of marks the end of that, and it shifts, and Jesus spends chapters 13 through 17 in a very private ministry setting with His disciples, and we call that the upper room discourse, and I can't wait to get to that. Those are some of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of John, maybe even in the whole of the New Testament. And so that's where we are heading now. So we're transitioning from Jesus' public ministry through His final rejection into His private ministry before He is crucified and resurrected. Now there's another little transition that's happening here that's taking place that we need to take note of, and I think this will be helpful for us, is that the gospel is going to go into the whole world. 
It's not just going to be isolated there in Jerusalem or even in Israel. Though the Jews of that day were convinced that God's salvation would come to them and go no further than that. Even though in the Old Testament there are prophecies about the gospel, um, the salvation of God going out to the Gentiles. But the culture was such at that time that they so despised anyone who was not a Jew. They just could not conceive of the thought that God would bring salvation to anyone outside the borders of Israel. And so we know that God intended to do something much bigger than just in Israel. Now, God had a special and unique relationship with His chosen people, right? But God plans to save far beyond the border of Israel, amen? He plans to save from generation to generation, even. And so I think what I, what I most note here in the text that we're looking at today is the love of God the love of Jesus. God is love, and He has purposed to save. From eternity past, He's going to pour out His love on an untold innumerable multitude of people who are lost and dying and needing His salvation. That was God's intention. And God does this most vividly, most powerfully, most notably through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Amen? That's how God demonstrates His love. That's how God pours out His love, through the sacrifice of His one and only Son. And that is a love that was to go out into all of the world from generation to generation, of which we here in this room today are recipients. Amen? Hallelujah. You know, love can be a tricky thing to define. You maybe have never considered that, but if you were to ask different people what love is, you would probably get a wide range of, uh, of ideas and thoughts and I think one of the simplest and probably most profound ways to understand love is love gives. The highest essence of love is to give. Now, I don't want to say that love is not an emotion. I think that love is an emotion. But emotions come and go, don't they? They're up and down, up and down. And so even when we aren't feeling the emotion, we're still commanded to love. And how do we love even when we don't feel like it? We love by giving. We love by serving. We love by blessing even those who maybe hate or would persecute us, Jesus said. And that's exactly what our God has done. That's exactly what Jesus has done. The Father gave His Son, His one and only Son, and Jesus, the Son, gave His life when we were at our worst. Romans 5.8 tells us, you know, says that uh, scarcely for a righteous man would one die, and yet maybe for a good person one would consider dying. I always thought that was kind of odd. What is he, what is he saying there? And I, I've kind of heard it said this way, that uh, you, know, you can be right and still be obnoxious. You, know? you can be right and still be offensive or off-putting. But, uh, you know, then there's kind of the contrast between the righteous and the good. But here's the thing. We were neither. The Bible says that God loved us when we were enemies. When we were enemies. And so that's the kind of love that God has poured out on us. And I see this most uh, this spelled out for us so beautifully in Romans chapter 8. And so let me, let me read this to you. As we consider the love of God the love of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, it says, And what then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? God did not spare His one and only Son. If He was willing to do that, why would He withhold any other good thing from us? That's the argument that Paul is making. We are recipients of God's amazing sacrificial love. And that being the case, we can have confidence that God will continue to love us and pour out His blessing on us. Then in verse 33, it says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. So if God has said you are innocent, if God has said that you are not guilty, who can bring a charge against you? Who can say, no, you are guilty, when the ultimate judge has said you are forgiven because of the blood of my, Je- of my son, Jesus Christ? Amen? And so no one can bring an accusation against God's children. We are covered in His love. And he's even at the right hand of God now praying for his beloved. Isn't that amazing? Even here. So then he goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Amen? Man, that's great news. And this is something we have to preach to ourselves. Just this morning I was sitting there kind of thinking, praying, reading, and something popped into my head, and I started to, you know, want to guilt myself, and I said, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not even my own weakness, my shortcomings. Nothing. Amen? And that, my friends, that is what gives us life. That's what gives us joy. That's what gives us peace and confidence. That is what gives us the wherewithal to serve and honor Christ. The sacrificial love of Jesus is our motivation, amen? You know, some people think that uh, what we need is more fear to motivate us to follow Jesus. I've even thought that, you know, if only God could just strike fear into my heart, right? And don't get me wrong, the fear of God is important. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and so we must have a reverence, an awe, a respect, an adoration, a devotion for God. We must. We should. But the love of God is what compels us. The love of God is what is going to see us through, much more than fear. Fear is a weak motivator when it's all said and done. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, he says, For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So we are compelled, brothers and sisters. We are motivated. We are driven by the love of Christ. That's our motivation, the sacrificial love of Jesus. He died for us and He rose again. Amen?
One more thing, this little quote here before we finish up this introduction here. Martin Luther, I don't know if you know who he is. He was a, a man used mightily of God in the 16th century. And uh, he has a really amazing testimony, but he was, a, he, was a, he was Catholic. He was, God used him to bring about the Protestant Reformation. And for years he served as a Catholic priest, but he was unregenerate. And he tried so hard to appease God. He tried so hard to please God through all kinds of different means. One of, he's kind of legendary for how he would punish himself, the kinds of things that he would do to himself, the way he would beat himself and deprive himself and sleep in the freezing cold on concrete floors. Uh, and, and just the, the extent to which he would go to try to beseech the mercy of God. That was, his, that was his misunderstanding of how we approach God. And so R.C. Sproul says, uh, R.C. Sproul gives us an example from Martin Luther's life. His phobias were many and legendary. He had such a fear of the wrath of God early on in his ministry, and somebody put the question to him, Brother Martin, do you love God? You know what he said? Love God? You ask me? If I love God, sometimes I hate God. I see Christ as a consuming judge who is simply looking to me to evaluate me and to visit affliction upon me. That's pretty, pretty heavy, huh? R.C. Sproul continues, Imagine a young man preparing for the ministry declaring that he goes through periods of hating God. Luther's hatred was inseparably related to this paralyzing fear which he expressed that he had about God. That's what the fear of God can do. Martin Luther says this, though, uh, later. I love this. He says, While I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a tyrant. But when I knew Him to be my Father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against Him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion... I beat upon my chest that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. That's a radical transformation, isn't it? I mean, that's radical. And what was it? It's the love of God through Christ Jesus that brought him to this place. The love of God through Christ Jesus. And so that's what we'll be looking at in these seven verses. Compelled by the sacrificial love of Jesus. Compelled by the sacrificial love love of Jesus. So I'm going to read to us chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Actually, I'm going to drop back to verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb had raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the Word of God. All right, so as we move into our text here, the first thing I want to point out is that the sacrificial love of Jesus is boundless. Amen? The sacrificial love of Jesus knows no bounds. It is limitless. Verse 17, it says, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So as previously stated, God used the, uh, the raising of Lazarus from the grave as the catalyst to stir up this crowd. And this was amazing. Out of the seven major signs that Jesus did in John, all pale in comparison to this. And so when this happened, the people were ready. They were ready to receive their king and to worship him as such. Now, when the Pharisees saw what was happening, they panicked because they had already conspired that they were going to try to get Jesus, apprehend him, and have him killed. And yet, even in the midst of that, now people are whipped up into this frenzy of worship, and they're praising Jesus and they even turn on each other. They begin to turn on each other and they're blaming each other for their inability to stop Jesus from receiving praise and worship from the people. And then they make this exaggerated statement, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world is following Jesus. Now, I would say that this is an exaggerated statement for them to make in a sense, but it is also a true statement in God's plan. This, again, is one of those little uh, transitional uh, hint to the transitional theme that I was talking about. And uh, we'll kind of unpack that a little more as we go here. And so this is the thing. God's love is for the world. The whole world would go after Jesus. People from every tribe, uh, nation, tongue, from generation to generation would come to worship the Lamb. And that was God's intention. And this is a theme that the Apostle John regularly puts before us. Of course, we all know John 3.16, For God so loved the what? The world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Amen? 1 John 2, 1 and 2, it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Amen? Vast is the love of God. Mighty is the love of God. Sufficient is the love of God. For the whole world. Now, after John records this uh, exaggerated statement of the Pharisees, I think it's no coincidence that we are immediately introduced to these Gentile seekers. I think that's a subtle 
little hint here that John is giving us. Salvation is going to spread far beyond the borders of Israel. And just as the Pharisees were saying the whole world is going after him, John immediately pivots and introduces us to these Greeks who are coming in to meet the king. And so that's very subtle, but I think that this is all, and most commentators agree, this is what's going on here. And so verse 20 It says, now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. So we know from Luke that after the triumphal entry, Jesus went on to to lament, to weep over Jerusalem, and then to cleanse the temple for a second time. You remember how Jesus came into the temple in the beginning of John and threw over the, the tables and, you know, put an end to the, the corrupt practices taking place in the temple? And Jesus does that again here, and we're told that He also teaches in the temple daily. So that's kind of where Jesus is posted up here. Passover is at hand. All of these pilgrims are coming in from far and wide to Jerusalem. Among them are some of these Greeks. And who are these Greeks? Well, uh, most, they could be a number of different things, but most likely they are what would be called God-fearers. So they weren't proselytes. They weren't people who had totally converted over into Judaism, but they respected, they loved the God of Israel, and they sought to worship Him and to know Him. And so they were known as God-fearers. And so likely that's what we have here. And so these Greeks, these foreigners, these pilgrims come in to worship the God of Israel, and they request a meeting with Jesus. And somehow they figure Philip can arrange this. It's possible that Jesus is all the way in the temple. We know that the Gentiles could not go past the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and there's the court of the women. It becomes more exclusive as you get more towards the center. And then there's the Uh, where the actual worship and things are happening, and then the Holy of Holies. And so it's possible that they send Philip and Andrew in there to get Jesus and bring Him out. But I love this, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The King James Version says, Sir, we would see Jesus. And I didn't know this, but um, especially in um, much older churches historically, that would be engraved in a lot of pulpits. So there's a pulpit in Savannah, Georgia, I heard about, it's 10 feet tall. And the person would have to climb the stairs to get up into the pulpit, and engraved in big letters inside it is, Sir, we would see Jesus. And the idea is that the pastor's job is to present Jesus to the people. You should be able to see Jesus as the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed. Never should you be hindered from seeing Jesus. And unfortunately, that's, that's easy to do. And so they said, sir, we would see Jesus. We would like to see Jesus. We would like to have a conversation with Him. We would like to have a a meeting with Him, an audience with Him. And so I would say, you know, Jesus came to bring salvation into the world. And that includes our little slice of the world, your little slice of the world, right? And so my question is, are we able to take people to Jesus? This isn't really the point, but it was the application I couldn't pass up, you know. Would someone identify you as one that could lead them to Jesus? Something that we have to think about, just take a little inventory in our life. 
Is our life so given to God and the things of God? Are we so marked by our love and our hunger for Him and our desire to be involved in the things of God that that's evident to other people? You remember, uh, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, where I said if uh, Christianity suddenly became illegal today, would they be able to amass enough evidence to indict you as being a follower of Jesus, right? It's kind of the same thing. And so, can people see Jesus in us? Would someone come to you and say, I wish to see Jesus? If someone did and asked, could you? Could we help them to see Jesus? That's a question that we have to answer. You know, if you were in a position to tell someone about Jesus, could you? Have you? And it's not a hard thing to do. It's not, but it can be scary. And, you know, we do, I think, get a little worked up about what if we mess up or say something wrong. But, you know, to be able to present Jesus to somebody given the opportunity is something that we need to do. And it's really just as simple as Jesus died for our sins. He rose again from the grave. Amen. Victorious over death. And He gives salvation to any who believe. That's the good news of the gospel. He died for our sins and rose again from the grave. And you have to call upon His name to receive that salvation. You have to trust Him. And even having our testimony, you know, we can talk about how God did that in our own lives. And they say you should be able to do that in like a minute. You need to practice that. If you're like in an elevator or wherever and the opportunity arises, can you give the gospel? I mean, Paul gives the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 in the most succinct way possible. And it's exactly what I just said. Christ died according to the Scriptures, rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. I mean, that's, that's the, the gospel boiled down. It's what Christ has done for us. Amen? And so, you know, can people see something of Jesus by looking at our lives? Or do we hinder people from seeing Jesus by the way that we live? That's a convicting question, isn't it? That's a convicting question. And uh, I hope and pray that you know, God can use me in that way and can use you guys in that way and that our lives can be used to bring glory to God and to help people see Jesus. Amen? Jesus' love is boundless. It's boundless. And we may put limitations on the love of God. We may put limitations on that. We might think that person is too far from the reach of God. That person is too far gone. That person can never be saved. That person would never be saved. We may put limitations on God for ourselves. We might be the type who are just perpetually living in guilt, perpetually living with condemnation that we heap upon ourselves. There have been times in my life where I thought, Satan doesn't even have to attack me because I'm doing his job for him, frankly. You know, just living in guilt, limiting the love of God, not recognizing that God's love is so much bigger than our performance. God's love is so much bigger than, you know, our inability to keep our own standards of what we think we ought to be doing on any given day. And then when we think that we've broken one of these little, we, you know, we have one of these little infractions on our list of do's and don'ts that somehow God's love has been, you know, hindered towards us. Isn't that, that's, that's amazing, isn't it? The reality is we don't know just how bad we break the laws God's law and our little laws on a daily basis. If we did, I mean, yeah, we just don't even know. So we, we tend to limit God. We don't know how big God's love actually is, how boundless and limitless it actually is. 
And I praise God for that. I praise God for His boundless, limitless love. It was to go far beyond Israel, far beyond Israel, around the world through every generation into eternity. Amen? All right, well, next, point number two, the sacrificial love of Jesus is necessary. So praise God that the love of God, the love of Jesus, the sacrificial love is boundless. It is downright necessary. It's a must. The sacrificial love of Jesus, it had to happen this way. Verse 23, it says, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now, this was one of the things that I struggle with in this text. It's kind of hard to know who Jesus is talking to right here. Because you don't get the sense that Jesus is talking to uh, the Greeks. It sounds like they, Andrew and Philip went to get Jesus, and then they, they say, you know, probably tell Jesus this is happening, and then Jesus just immediately kind of launches into this, this little teaching here. Uh, it's hard to know. I've heard different pastors and uh, commentators kind of see it through a different lens. But uh, it's as if to me that the reality of these Greeks coming to Jesus signals something in Jesus' mind. The, the, like his time, his, it's imminent, it's coming. And Jesus recognizes symbolically that these Greeks coming to find him indicates that it's time for the Son of Man to die for the sins of the world. It's almost like he has this aha moment and then he launches off into this because I don't know, I, I assume, I imagine that he did meet with these Greeks and gave them an audience, it's hard to say. But if this, if this is what he said to the Greeks, they would have had to have been so lost. I mean, I, I wouldn't know what in the world to make of that, you know. And so, um, I think Jesus is recognizing that his time has come, and he knows, it's almost like he's preaching to himself that this has to happen. It has to go this way. And so, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, the Son of Man, it's a, one of the phrases that Jesus uses about himself more than any other title, and this comes from Daniel in particular, and it was a title for the Messiah. And so, Jesus takes that upon himself, and he says, the hour has come. Now, if you are a Bible student at all, you have probably heard Jesus use that phrase before, His hour. And usually He uses it in the other sense. My hour has not yet come. People would try and take Him and kill Him, but His hour had not come. Even in John chapter 2, when Mary came to Jesus and asked Him to help with the wine that had run out, He said, you know, my hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with, with me? You know. And so here now Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come. And this speaks of His purpose and His mission. See, Jesus came with a mission. He came with an absolute purpose, and that was to die. The King came to die for the sins of the people. The King came to be crucified, to suffer under the wrath of Almighty God in our place, to drink the cup, the cup of God's wrath. Jesus says in John 12, 27, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And so Jesus knew why he came. 
His hour was upon him. He began to become vexed, deeply distressed and troubled because he knew what he was about to undergo, but he was not deterred from it. Now, he says that it's his time to be glorified. Now, there's nothing glorious about what's about to happen to him. The cross is the most humiliating thing that anybody could undergo. He is betrayed by those closest to him. He's abandoned. He's falsely accused. He is mocked. He is tortured. He is uh, spit upon. He is uh, rejected by the people that he came to save. And then he suffers the worst pain, I would say, imaginable. But that is nothing in comparison to the wrath of Almighty God being poured out on him there. The darling of heaven, the Son of God, who has been in perfect communion with the Father from all of eternity, is now here on this cursed tree, enduring the wrath of Almighty God, being absolutely humiliated. And what I think Jesus is doing here when He says that it is time for the Son of Man to be glorified, He's looking past the cross. The cross is a means to an end. It is through the cross that Jesus would receive His greatest glory. Hebrews 12, 2, it says, "...looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame." So Jesus endured the agonies of Calvary because He was able to set His focus on the joy that awaited Him. And what was the joy? It was the joy of saving us. It was the joy of receiving the praise and the glory of those who had been forever saved and forgiven and redeemed. That was the joy. That was the glory. And I think that's just I mean, that's just a practical lesson even for us. Just as our Savior was able to undergo the the worst torment, but He did it because He was looking past that to the joy that was to come, we as Christians have to do the same. We just do. God calls us to go through some deeply devastating, hurtful, painful, dark times. Amen? If you're in here right now and you're breathing, then you know that's true. You know that's true. And so how is it that we get through those things? We look past those things to the promises of God. We know that it may be like this now, but it won't be like that forever. Even if we're going through something that in this life it will always be, we know that on the other side things will be made right and that things will not always be this way. I remember uh, when I was going through one of the just darkest, most painful moments of my life. A man of God kept telling me that this is going to pass, Rob. It's not going to be like this. The light is going to break through. And that didn't bring me much comfort at the time. But man, was he right. God showed himself so faithful to me. God's light did break through, and it did shine again, brighter than ever. And now I try to tell people the same thing, and I know when I'm telling them that it's not encouraging them much. And I'll tell them that. I know that this doesn't encourage you much right now. But I can, as surely as I'm standing here, I can promise you that God's light will shine through the darkness again. And that has to be the hope of the Christian. That was the hope that carried Jesus through. Amen? Philippians 2, verse 6, it says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling to that. He let go of it. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant 
And being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Amen. That was the glory that awaited him. That was the joy that awaited Jesus. Jesus knew full well that the cross was necessary to fulfill his mission. That's why Satan tried to circumvent the cross. Remember that? Satan tried a number of times in Matthew 4 to give him the glory. He was like, I'll just give it to you right now. Take the easy way out. Take the easy way. You don't have to go through all of that suffering and cross stuff here. Just worship me. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't take the easy way out. Jesus went all the way. He fulfilled the mission perfectly. And Jesus said that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. Now, this is language that they would understand, you know, agricultural language, something that they would have been very familiar with where they lived. And so the idea here is that just as a seed, if left alone, nothing, it, it will do nothing. But if it goes into the ground and sprouts, then it will produce a great crop. And that's what Jesus is likening his death and resurrection to. That he must die. That it has to happen this way. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Did the cup pass? Did Jesus have to drink the cup? Yes or no? He drank the cup. There was no other way. It had to happen this way. This was God's intention, God's plan, because... The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It takes life. Sin is so heinous in the sight of God that it requires life, a life to be given. And so for years and years, there were these giving of the sacrificial sheep, lambs, goats, so on and so forth, over and over and over, day in, day out, day in, day out. It was a bloody, exhausting mess because it could only cover over. The blood of goats and bulls and sheep did not have the power in and of themselves to take away sin. But the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the one who alone could keep God's law perfectly. That's the only reason. See, none of us, we've broken God's law a million different ways. Jesus Christ did not. And the reason that he was able to keep God's law perfectly is because he is God. Only God is good. Only God can keep God's righteous standard. Amen? But Jesus was at the same time truly human. And so he could sympathize with our weakness. He experienced that. And he walked through this life as we do. And he is, he is fit to be our representative, to take our place on the cross and to die in our stead as a representative for hum, humanity, human, uh, mankind. So it had to happen this way. This was by God's design. It was the only way that the sins of the world, the sins of sinful men and women could be truly washed away and forgiven. This was the way that it had to happen. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, there would be an abundant harvest, Jesus says. An abundant harvest. Amen? And I would say that this applies to our lives too. This applies to our lives too. If we would have a harvest in our lives, we have to be willing to do the same. We have to be 
those who die to self. We are required to die to self regularly. And it's only through that death that we experience the fruit of God, the harvest of God. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. And that's exactly what Jesus does here in our third and final point. He makes this very practical towards us. So Jesus said that it had to happen this way. He had to give his life as an act of sacrificial love. And as a result, we're to do the same. Just as it was necessary for him, for there to be a harvest, for there to be fruit, it is required of us in our day-to-day lives that we would be fruitful Christians. It's required of us, in fact. So, verse 25, it says, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. So what does Jesus mean when he says that if you love your life, you're going to lose it? What does that mean exactly? Because you know what? I love my life. You know? I love my life. I praise God for my life. Should I be in fear? You know? And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I think understanding what he means by love, we need to understand what he means by hate. Because he says that, really, we need to hate our lives. We have to hate our lives in this world if we want to keep it for eternal life. That's, that's radical language, right? What does that mean? What is he saying? Well, the word, the actual word in the original language there for hate, it means to, de- to detest on a comparative basis. Hence, to love someone or something less than someone or something else. To renounce one choice in favor of another. Does that make sense? So it's like a matter of preference. You have to love God and the things of God so much more than your own life that it's almost like hate in comparison. Um, it's, it's, it's to disregard my choices uh, or my preference uh, for something greater, right? And so that's kind of the idea. We are not to cling to the things of this world so as to neglect the things of God. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? To love your life is to insist on your way over and, over and above God's way. If what you want for yourself conflicts with what God would have for you, and you reject God's will, then you are loving your life. You're loving your life. To hate your life is a willingness to forsake your own way for the Lord's way. This is synonymous with dying to yourself. Jesus regularly says that we must die to ourselves, take up our cross, and die. That is to abandon our own selfish ambitions. Not everything that we love or desire in this world is is bad, right? And it doesn't always conflict with God's plan. I'm not trying to say we have a good plan and uh, what God wants for us is just so horrible, right? But we have to do it anyways. That's not what I'm trying to say. God's plan is always better than our plan. We're just so short-sighted we don't see it. Oftentimes we don't believe it. But we're called to relinquish, you know, our grip, to let go of our grip on our life and to surrender it to the Lord, to His way, to die to self, to hate our life, as it were, in comparison to God's plan for our lives. And so, you know, we naturally desire safety, don't we? Comfort, 
success, wealth. And let me tell you something, those aren't bad things. I don't, you know, desire danger and misery and failure and poverty. That would be weird, don't you think? And so it's not like I just get up and pray, oh God, please put me in danger today. Can I just have a miserable life? Can I fail at everything I do and just experience crushing poverty? You know, that's, that's not the idea, but we live for those things so much, we so desire the comforts of life and security and success and, and wealth that that is exclusive, exclusively what we are living for, exclusively. We give very little thought or attention to God's things because sometimes God does call us to, to go out, to do certain things, to sacrifice, to serve in such a way that will come at a cost to us. And we do have a choice to make, and we have to determine, are we going to sacrifice for the things of God? You know, some people do not come to Jesus, and I think this is more immediately what Jesus is saying here. He says you're going to lose your life, right? Some people know that coming to Jesus is going to change their life drastically, they have relationships, perhaps they have jobs, they have something that is going to cost them to follow Jesus. They're not willing to pay that price, and so they love their life. They love their life more than Jesus. And that's really sad because those things are nothing in comparison to the weight of glory of knowing Jesus and being with Him and conversely losing Jesus and not being with Him because of these these little trinkets in this life, these, these petty little things. We're not willing to pay that price. And Jesus said, if that's you, if you cling to those things to the exclusion of me and the Father, you're going to lose your life. You're going to lose your life. You know, we, we, we try to cling to this life, but we're going to lose it. Every one of us in here, we're going to lose it at some point. But if we give away, if we let go... We're going to re receive something that can never be taken away from us. And so that's the decision that you have to make. Are you willing to pay the cost? To, and oftentimes there is no cost. Come on, really. Did any of us give up anything to come to Jesus? Did He not reward us a thousand times over uh, for making the decision to follow Him? If you're unwilling to serve the Lord because it comes at a risk... That's a problem. I remember years ago, I was living in Tennessee, and the pastor here, Pastor Bill, at that time, we decided to link up and go on a missions trip to Mexico, and we were trying to get people back in Tennessee to go, and people were just afraid, you know, and I, I get that. I understand, okay? I don't want to minimize that, but I was talking to Bill about it, and I said, man, people are just afraid of this, that, or the other, and he said, oh, they love their lives. And I was like... I mean, well said. I mean, I think that's a good application, really. They love their lives. They're not willing to risk to serve the Lord. Sometimes God calls us to risk deeply. Amen? He just does. If we're not willing to make any sacrifice, time, give of our time, to give of our resources, to give of our, our money to support the work of the Lord, missions, etc., the needs of other brothers and sisters who are struggling, if we're not willing to make sacrifice to serve God, then we are loving our lives. We're not dying to ourselves. And Jesus said that we have to die to ourselves. We have to hate our lives in this world if we want to be like Him. Jesus says that if anyone serves Him, let them follow Him. 
That is, following his footsteps. So I just want to remind us that it's because of what Jesus has done. It's because Jesus was willing to be the seed that went into the earth and died and produced this great harvest, which is us. It's because he's done that. That's what compels us to do the same. It's not so that we can have God's love. It's not so that we can check all the boxes on our arbitrary list. It is because of what Christ has done for us, and there is great joy in doing the same. Amen? Doing the same for him. And that's what Jesus says in John 13. He says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I, I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus did that. We should do the same. He says, For I have given you an example that you should do, as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, and listen to this, a servant is not greater than his master nor is he who is sent greater than the one who sent him. We are not greater than our master, y'all. We ain't greater than him. He's our Lord. He's our master. He, consider how he has served us. Can we do any less? Of course we can never serve him or each other the way that he has served us, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try with all of our might to give all that we've got because he's worthy of it all, amen? He's worthy of it all. And he said that, we would do the same if we are servants of Him. We serve and honor Jesus because we have been served and honored. We sacrifice because Jesus has sacrificed for us. This is interesting, but remember back in Philippians 2, and I'm about to close. I'm just right on the cusp, so hang with me. Philippians chapter 2. You remember that? Jesus laid down His life. He died the death of the cross. God highly exalted Him. Paul's actually making some application here. If you go back just a few verses in Philippians 2, the issue of Philippians was disunity in the church. And Paul says this, he says, "...let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind esteem others better than yourself." He says, "...look out, you know, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus." Then he goes into how Jesus left his heavenly glory, died a gruesome death, death for us, and then was exalted for it. And so this is the application. So the point Paul is making is, is because Jesus did that for us, how much more should we be willing to look out for the interest of others? How much more should we be willing to lay down always thinking about ourselves and what's good for us and start thinking about what's good for others? Because isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what Jesus did when He left His heavenly glory to die for us? And you know what? The Bible says if we humble ourselves, God exalts us in due time. That's what He did. He humbles the servant, or He, he, he honors the servant, excuse me, that humbles Himself. Well, Jesus said that where He is, there His servant will be also. And Jesus said, whoever serves him will be honored by the Father. And I'll close with this quote by J.C. Ryle. Ryle says, Let us lay to heart these comfortable promises and go forward in the narrow way without fear. The world may cast out our name as evil and turn us out of its society, but when we dwell with Christ in glory, we shall have a home from which we can never be ejected. The world may pour contempt on our religion and laugh us and our Christianity to scorn, but when our Father honors us at the last day before the assembly of angels and men, we shall find that His praise makes amends for all.
It's going to be worth it. The difficulty, the sacrifice, whatever it is that we go through in this life, it will be worth it because wherever Jesus is, his servant will be also. And we know that the Father will honor that servant. And that's what we're living for. That's our motivation. Amen? Jesus' love is limitless, his sacrificial love. Jesus' sacrificial love had to happen. And we are to follow, we are compelled to follow his sacrificial love because we have received it. Amen? So let us follow our King and our Savior. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for your holy word. We thank you for the truth of Jesus Christ, our Savior, what he has accomplished for us at the cross. Help us, Lord, to walk in his ways. Help us to die to ourselves to forgive other people even when it hurts. To sacrifice and go the extra mile and do things that we might not necessarily want to do that might inconvenience us, but to do it because, Lord, you have served us. And so we honor you this day, we thank you, and we praise you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand and sing this chorus together. You are the love I need. You are the
of this life, and may He be glorified in the mountaintop. May He provide for all your needs according to His riches and mercies in Christ Jesus. Go and serve your King. Amen.